Alright, let's open our Bibles to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus uh, chapter 33. As we look at God's Word together this evening, the title of the message is the most important thing in life. That's a bold sermon title, isn't it? Because I think there's a lot of things that we might could deem in our opinions as to what the most important thing in life is. But I really believe after we work through this passage of Scripture together that you might come to the same conclusion as I have as we see here the events that unfold before us. Exodus 33, I want us to begin reading at verse 1. We'll read a couple of verses, then we'll skip down and look at a few others before we jump right into this. Exodus 33 and verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt. Already this starts off a little unusual. Because what God does here is speak of Israel in terms of Moses' people, but not his. Something's wrong. Something's going on. And we're fixing to find out what it is. He says to Moses, go up, you and the people which you have brought out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, unto thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee, and will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Go down to verse 12, if you will. And Moses said unto the Lord, Thou sayest unto me, bring up this people. But thou hast not, or in other words, you, you haven't told me, you haven't let me know whom thou will send with me. Yet thou hast said, you said, I, I know thee by thy name. Thou hast found grace in my sight. Most like, I'm all confused. I thought you were taking us together to the land, but you've told me to go without you. Now look here, verse 13. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now the way that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation is thy people. It's a rebuttal against what God had earlier said. This is your people, Lord, not, not mine. And he said, verse 14, my presence shall go with thee. And I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. If thy presence isn't going, Moses said, then I don't want to go. The book of Exodus is centered around the thrilling story of God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. Under the obedient leadership of Moses, the children of Israel were rescued from over 400 years of slavery. It wasn't an easy task by no means, and 
We know the story of the plagues and bringing the children of Israel out of Pharaoh's captivity, but God provided the deliverance. And Israel began their journey to the promised land, the land that we know today as the land of Israel. The place here of our text marks a notorious moment for Israel and really one of the most heartbreaking scenes in Moses' leadership. There's a great deal of sin that is going on, a lot of things taking place, carried out by the people, followed by what we will see here as a monumental moment of intercession on the part of Moses. When I read this passage, particularly the verses here toward the end, verses 14 and 15, I am reminded of what is to me the most important thing in life. The most important thing to my life personally. The most important thing to the life of my family. And as a pastor, the most important thing in the life of our church. It's really a soul-searching question, isn't it? To ask, what is the most important thing in life to me? Have you thought about that recently? Well, now's a good time. What's the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing in the life of your family? What, what would you say, above any and all, the most important thing in the life of Open Bible Church? For some, it's their image, their reputation, what people think of them. For others, it's their dreams, their happiness, what life can provide for them. And by the way, good things often can become higher on the priority list than God ever intended them to be. Sometimes relationships, though good, are acted out in our lives as the most important things. Ministries, though good, can sometimes be carried out as if they are the most important things. However, Every once in a while, I think we all, including myself, need to be reminded that what ought to be the most important thing in life is nothing else but the presence of God. The presence of God ought to be the most important thing in my life. It ought to be the most important thing in our families. It definitely ought to be the most important thing in our church. I want us to work through this passage together. If you're taking notes, you write to, like to write things down. Write down a couple of things, if you will, tonight. Number one, write down Israel's problem. Number one, Israel's problem. I want you to go back. You're in chapter 33. Go back to chapter 32, if you would, please, and look at verse 35. The Bible says, And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. You remember the story, right? It's one of the most heartbreaking highlights in Israel's existence. Let me give you a summary of what happened. Israel was encamped at the bottom of Mount Sinai. While there, Moses was on top of the mountain having a face-to-face -face encounter with God. He's meeting with the Lord. And if you'll remember while Moses is on top of Mount Sinai meeting with God, it was there that God gave him the Ten Commandments that he would later bring down to the people. Not only that, the Ten Commandments were certainly given, but God also gave Moses and that meeting a blueprint for how the tabernacle would be built and uh, structured and how it would be served in the life of the children of Israel. 
while this meeting is going on, there's a whole lot of other things taking place down at the bottom of the mountain. Primarily due to the fact that this meeting is taking a lot longer than the children of Israel were willing to wait. And as a result, they grew impatient and impulsive. Look at chapter 32 and verse number 1. The Bible says, and when the people saw that Moses, notice this next word, delayed to come down. Fascinating. We know that everything that God does in his timing is perfect. There was no delay on God's part, but the people viewed it as a delay. It was taking way too much time. Moses is up there. In fact, they get to the point where they think Moses has probably died. Look at the rest of the verse. When they saw that people, uh, the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, up, up. By the way, that's not a casual up. That's a let's go, get up. We want something done right now. Uh, my father-in-law in his home in Raleigh, North Carolina has a special seat as most dads and husbands do in the house that he likes to sit. It's fascinating. Anybody who ever sits in his seat, whether it's the grandkids or, or my wife or even myself, if he walks into the living room, the first thing he's going to say is up. All right, up, get up. That's my seat. That's where I sit. Well, that's what the children of Israel do in the errand. Up right now. There's something we need to do and we don't need to wait any longer to do it. Look at the rest of the verse. Up. Make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we have no idea what has happened to him. Impatient and impulsive. Tired of waiting. The next thing you know it, we're building golden calves. There's a lesson to learn here, and that is impatient attitudes always give way to impulsive actions. Always. Impatient attitudes always give way to impulsive actions. Perhaps we don't see this illustrated any better than in the sports world. I told you this morning, I'm a sports fan. I like the local teams. I'm a Carolina Panthers football team, a fan. I'm a Charlotte Hornets basketball fan. I used to be a ball boy for the Charlotte Hornets when I was a kid. Once I hit Glenn Rice in the head with a basketball by accident. It was the worst professional sports moment in my life. I like baseball. Good news for probably most of you. I am a New York Yankees fan. We don't have baseball in North Carolina. And so because we don't have a professional baseball team, I was... Uh, forced in my life uh, by family to pick the greatest baseball team ever to exist, the New York Yankees. And being a lifelong New York Yankees baseball fan, I think I know what I'm talking about when I say that the Yankees, especially in the Steinbrenner era, have lived by this policy. What have you won for me lately? All right. What have you won for me lately? And if winning doesn't happen quick, firings will. All right. That's true in the sports world. The off-season happens, and what are we talking about? Who's going to get canned, all right? Who's going to get fired? Who's going to get traded? Impatience leads to impulsiveness. And it's true in our everyday life. 
There's no question here that Israel still wanted what God had promised them. And what did God promise? The land. That's what they wanted. The problem was they wanted it in a time and manner of their choosing. They were unwilling to wait on God. They were unwilling to wait on the design by which God had chosen for them to receive it. And so they became impatient. And as a result, they acted impulsively. What did they do? Well, in Moses' absence, they convinced Aaron to build a golden calf, a God that would take them to the land of promise. And to our surprise, Aaron allowed it. Kind of blows our minds, to be quite honest. And the sin that unfolds, it's, it's egregious. The idol worship was filled with drunkenness and immorality. They even held a praise service whereby they credited the golden calf for delivering them from Egypt. I mean, this is the calf that they just built. It was one of the most self-centered acts of disobedience we've seen in all of Israel's history. And let me tell you something, God wasn't happy about it. He was angry. In chapter 32 and verse number 10, the Bible says, as God is speaking to Moses, he tells him to get down the mountain to see what Israel's done. And then he gives a little commentary on how he's feeling about it. God says, my wrath has waxed hot against them. <laughs> Look right here. I'm not sure that I fully understand what it means to have your wrath waxing hot. But I'm pretty sure that I don't want to be on the receiving end of somebody's wrath waxing hot. Especially that of God's wrath. He is angry. He, he is upset. His wrath is waxing hot. And so Moses comes down from the mountain. He, he sees this thing that Israel has done. Imagine their response when they saw Moses walking down those few last hills into the camp. Whatever the response was, Moses clearly calls them out for their sin. Look at verse 30 of chapter 32. He looks at them and tells them, ye have sinned a great sin. A great sin. Not that you have just sinned, but you have sinned a great sin. So here we are. Israel has grown impatient and impulsive. They've tried to get ahead of God. They're tired of waiting on Him. Let's take matters in our own hands, is their heart's cry. And that's when God brings down the hammer of His judgment. We read the verse a moment ago, but look at it once more in verse 35 of chapter 32. And the Lord plagued the people. The irony is unbelievable. The same God who plagued Egypt for Israel's deliverance is now plaguing Israel for their disobedience. God never permits His people to sin successfully. We need to remember that. God never permits His people to sin successfully the hidden sins of your hearts the things that you dabble in that no one else may know about and while it appears for a brief moment that no judgment or consequences are going to fall into your life because of it please note this this evening that God never allows us to sin successfully 
Several acts of his judgment does he bring down for their impatience. You can read about them. I'm not taking the time to point out every one of them. What I do want to point out is the last one, the greatest one. We read it a moment ago. Look at chapter 33 and verse 1. The Lord said, you go, get the people, Moses, take them unto the land which I promised. Verse 3, I'm not going with you. I'm going to give you the land because I promised Abraham that I would do this. And I'm not going to break my promise. But, but the consequence of your idolatry and, and your sin and your impatience and, and your impulsiveness is that I'm not going with you. You can have the land, but you're not getting me. I read this passage just a couple of months ago. And the question that burned deep in my heart that allowed this sermon to come to fruition was this question. God was ringing true in my own heart. And that is, is there something I want so badly that I'm willing to risk the presence of God to get it? How about you? Now, I'm not necessarily talking about bad things. I'm talking about good things. What was it that Israel got impatient about? The land. That was a God thing. That was a good thing. God had told them, you can have this land, but you got to follow me. You'll get it on my terms. you got to be patient. But their impatience led to their impulsiveness, which led to their sin. They wanted the land more than they wanted God. How often in our lives... Are we willing to risk the presence of God just to get something we want so badly to have? God says to Moses, they can have the land, but they're losing me. How often do we put ourselves in the same situation? We attempt to take matters into our own hands while rushing the plan of God. In many of those cases, we do end up getting what we want. But at a great price, the presence and blessing of God. I have dreams, I have visions, I have goals. There are things that I want God to do in my life and in my family and our church. And if I'm not careful, that same heart of impatience that grew up within the people of Israel will often grow up into mine. We need a building desperately at our church. There's a lot of things that we're limited to do today. I'm thankful for the growth. We just don't have the room to do it. We're trying to save the money because we want to do it the right way. I get impatient. I find myself complaining from time to time. If we just had this building, if we just had the money, if the pastor would just win in the slot machines, perhaps he could help me build it. And that's the problem, isn't it? Sometimes God has to come down to where I'm at, knock me in the head a few times and say, what do you want more, Jonathan? You want this building that you think is going to help you out? Or do you want me? And I have to recalibrate and repent and get to a place 
where I say, God, I'm sorry for wanting good things more than I want you. I do want the presence of God in my life. I don't want to go where you're not. Israel has a problem. That's the first point. Right down the second point. Not only Israel's problem, but Moses' prayer. Moses' prayer. Let me say this before we read the scriptures. A leader who's not willing to pay the price of intercession is a leader not worthy of recognition. Moses was a true leader. He goes into this special tent where he would meet with God and he has a personal prayer meeting. Notice how this goes down. Look at verse number 11. Let's just back up. Look at verse 9. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door. Now this is not the tabernacle that we know. That tabernacle has yet to be built. This is just a particular tent where Moses would go to have a meeting with the Lord. So he enters into this tent and notice what verse 9 says. The Lord talked with Moses and all the people saw verse 10 the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door and all the people rose up and worshiped every man in his tent door and the Lord here it is again spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend I love that verse we've talked a lot about prayer today and I think there's a reason why because you can't have revival in your heart until you're willing to pray the price all three of our sessions today, including this one, were brought back to this privilege of prayer that we all have. Moses and God are speaking face to face. That's exactly what prayer is. Prayer is an intimate conversation between friends. That's what prayer is. Sometimes we get into the depths of trying to break out all these theological terms to dissect all that God wants us to do and be. Let's just make it simple tonight. Prayer is talking to my friend and my friend talking to me. Moses gets in the tent. He has a prayer meeting face to face, a conversation between friends. We mentioned this morning that praying without ceasing means that God wants to talk to me. But not only does God want to talk to me, and not only does He want to hear from me, but do you understand tonight that when you go to God in prayer, you have His undivided attention? It's a wonderful thought. And something that we don't get a lot of anymore in this culture. Try to have a conversation with people when they're somewhere near their cell phone. It's quite difficult, isn't it? Checking the text messages, looking at the Facebook, wives, your uh, husbands, your wives are trying to talk to you, but you can't stay off Twitter and the news and the sports and all this. I mean, we got everything vying for our attention. I do believe it's very rare throughout our days that we give someone our undivided attention. But you know, when you go to God in prayer, you have his undivided attention. Let me show you a verse, what I mean by this. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Well, why don't you turn there? Psalm 116. Psalm 116. Look at this, this is a beautiful verse. Psalm 116, verse number one. The psalmist writes here, here's how he opens it up. Psalm 116, one. I love the Lord. I love the Lord because He hath heard my voice and my supplications. Notice this next phrase. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. Look at that phrase, he hath inclined his ear unto me. I got to study that word inclined one day. You know what that means in the Hebrew? 
It means to bend down. Maybe you have young children, grandchildren in your home or in your life and Sometimes my children will come when they're wanting those unwrapped starbursts and they'll pull them down on my pants leg. Daddy, 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 daddy. And a lot of times so that I can understand them and hear them and try to figure out what they want, I'll catch myself bending down like this and blocking everything else out around me. Take their hand into mine and say something like, no, you cannot have my starburst. I take their hand into mine and I, what do you want? What do you need? Daddy's right here. I'm, I'm, I'm all yours. That's, that's the word inclined. He says, I love the Lord because he not only hears my voice, but when I call unto him, he bends down. He inclines himself to me. He gives me his undivided attention. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. That's prayer. I got the undivided attention of God. And that's exactly what Moses gets in this prayer tent. He gets the undivided attention of God. And he pours his heart out to God. Look at what he prays. Look at verse number 15. He prays, if thy presence, God, go not with us. Carry us not up this. This is incredible. The heart of Moses' prayer is, I don't want to be where your presence is not. Lord, if you're not going, then we don't want to go. I believe he's not only praying this on behalf of Israel, but on behalf of himself. Moses didn't want an angel to go before them. He knew that he couldn't do it in his own strength and power. He, he needed God and he pleads for the presence of God above everything else. Or he didn't want to be there. Safe to say that I believe the most important thing in Moses' life was the presence of God. How about you tonight? Is God's presence the most important thing in your life? In your home? In this church? Perhaps the call tonight is for God's people to desire and seek His presence more than we desire and seek anything else. Perhaps tonight you're even facing an important decision. Truly seeking the right direction. I ask you a question. Have you prayed this prayer of Moses yet? Lord, I don't want to be where your presence is not. If your presence go not with me, then I, I don't want to go. It may be praying over a new job. It may be praying over a relocation. It may be praying about a ministry endeavor in this church. Have you said to God, God, we want you to be in this. Because if you're not in this, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Your presence don't go. We don't want to be there. I'm convinced, especially in my own life, that the motives of our heart are often revealed by the things that we ask God for. To Moses, it wasn't the land that he wanted the most. 
It was God that he wanted the most. Maybe tonight you need to examine your prayer list. Determine what is it that I truly want the most in life. Well, the story ends on a good note. God answers Moses' prayer. Write down this third one and we'll be done. We see Israel's problem, Moses' prayer. Number three, God's presence. God's presence. Look at verse 17 there in our text. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing that thou hast spoken. I will do it, God says. He goes on to say, you you found grace in my sight. I I will forgive Israel's sin and my presence will go with you. And then you come down to verse number 19. God shares with Moses the benefits of his presence. I'll read it to you, then I'll break it down. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The benefits of his presence. I guess we could categorize them, I suppose, into three blessings that God's presence brings to our life. Why the presence of God ought to be the most important thing in our life. Write these down and we'll be done. Number one, God's presence brings His goodness. When we talk about the blessings of the presence of God, why it ought to be the most important thing, it's because the presence of God brings the goodness of God. Look at what he says in verse 19. I will make all my goodness. This is a wonderful phrase in the Bible. I will make all my goodness pass before thee, Moses. Not some of my goodness. Not a good bit of my goodness. No, I'll make all my goodness pass before thee. You see, it's in the presence of God that we experience the, the goodness of God. What, what is the goodness of God? I'm talking about all spiritual blessings that God freely bestows upon His people. That's the goodness of God. All spiritual blessings. Isn't that what Ephesians 1 teaches us? It it teaches us that we are partakers of the divine nature of God, that we have entered into all the spiritual blessings of God. His goodness. I'm talking about the goodness of His love, the goodness of His provision, the goodness of His peace, the goodness of His sovereignty, the goodness of His joy, and yes, even as He mentions here, the goodness of His rest. His rest. Did you notice that back in 14? Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. Rest. That's the goodness of God. Are you tired tonight? Of course, Pastor, we've been in church all day. We're all tired. Or as we say, down in North Carolina. Are you tarred tonight? Are you tarred? Maybe you're tired of the life that you feel keeps bringing heartache after heartache. Tired of the toil. Tired of the burdens. Tired There's only one way in this life that you and I will ever experience true rest. And that is in the presence of God. And when God told Moses, I will give you rest, He's speaking of His goodness. One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible is Psalm 1611. The psalmist said to God, Thou wilt show me the path of life. I know you're going to direct me. I know you're going to put me on the right path. And he says it's in 
or on thy path that your presence is. Now, well, show me the path of life. And on the path of life is the presence of God. And where the presence of God is, there are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. That is, the goodness of God is in the presence of God. And the presence of God is doing the will of God, walking His path, going the direction that He leads us to go. God's presence brings His goodness. Number two, God's presence brings His glory. Look at the next phrase back in Exodus 33, verse 19. Not only does He say, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, but He says, I, this is God speaking here, not Moses. God says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. Wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to proclaim the name. We are, but hold on. Speak, think about what He's speaking of here. He's speaking of the glory of God, the glory of God. Where God's glory rests. Where God's glory is magnified. And the teaching of the Bible is consistent both of the Old and the New Testament. That God's presence is always associated with the glory of God. And we see that even in verse number 18. Notice it. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. What's Moses asking for? The presence of God. Because he knows the presence of God brings the glory of God. And the glory of God is always centered on the proclamation of His name. What God is saying to Moses is this. It is by my presence that the name of God will be magnified and glorified through you. There's a wonderful lesson for us to learn here. And that is the presence of God is the key to fruitfulness with the gospel. We can knock on a thousand doors a week. We can come up with every campaign known to man to try to proclaim the gospel. And those are all good and in their right place. But theologically, biblically, God says, if you want the glory of my name to be manifested, then you need my presence before any strategy, before any campaign, before any effort or work. You need my presence because it's only my presence where my name is magnified, where my name is glorified. I long for my church in Charlotte to be a place where the name of God is glorified, whereby sinners come to faith in Him. I want it to be a place where people come into our worship and hear the Word of God proclaimed. They don't think it's another religious sales pitch, but no, they come and they feel the glory of God and they see the presence of God and being a part of that, they, they enter into relationship with God. We're talking about the blessings of His presence. We want to see people saved and discipled and baptized and serving the Lord, then we need His presence more than anything else. The last one, God brings... God's presence brings goodness, glory. Number three, God's presence brings His grace. God's presence brings His grace. The last statement in the verse says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Once again, signifying to us that the presence of God brings the grace of God. The grace that saves us from wrath, yes. But also the grace that sustains us in failure. The grace that strengthens us in weakness. I, I don't know about you tonight, but I need the grace of God. I came to Christ as a five-year-old boy. I didn't know much about the Bible. But I remember that day so vividly. My dad was preaching in the foreign country of West Virginia. I was sitting on the, 
I was sitting on the, if you're from West Virginia, I was born there. That's the reason I said that, all right? So don't get offended. Don't get offended, all right? I was sitting on the front row in that church. Man, my dad preached and he yelled and screamed and spit. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know all the stuff about the Bible. I just knew, I knew Christ was drawing me and that I needed to be saved and I wanted to follow him. And that day, I experienced the saving grace of God. So yes, I look back at my life over 30 years ago at the day that I gave my life to Christ and I am thankful for the grace that has saved me. But that's not the only time I need His grace. Because I fell. I still live in this flesh. I have weaknesses. Obvious, Pastor, we're looking at you. You're scrawny and you look weak. I know I look weak, but I bet I can outrun you. <laughs> I'm not talking about weak physically, and we all have physical weaknesses. I'm I, I get weak spiritually. I, I get weak emotionally. There's hardly a week that goes by in my life where I don't cry out for the grace of God to give me strength where I am weak. And I'm thankful for the promise of His Word that He will give grace to whom He desires to give grace. God is assuring us here that living our lives in His presence is the key to living by this same grace. These are the blessings question tonight is, are you missing the blessings of God? Are you experiencing His goodness and His glory and His grace because you're living in His presence? I ask you at the beginning of the message, what in life is most important to you? And perhaps you look at this as highly opinionated. I think in examining these scriptures, you would at least have to come to the same conclusion that I have. It's very difficult to find something more important than the presence of God. What in this life is most important to you? Perhaps some sin has come into your life to cause God's presence to seem distant. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? That if you're a child of God, God's not going to throw you away and say, I regret, repent that I even saved you. And so you're unsaved now and I'm going to go. To... That's not what we mean here. There are times, maybe, maybe some married couple, you'll understand what I mean by this. There are times that in this marriage relationship that I have with my wife, and I, I texted her before church tonight and told her how much I loved her and appreciated her. And, and, and I do, and I miss her when I'm gone. But as good of a marriage that we have together, there are times, amen, fellas, that, that things seem to be just a little off between us. You know what I'm talking about. Don't look at my leg. You, your marriage seems off sometimes, too. We're just not clicking like maybe we were clicking last week. And you can just feel it. We, we say sometimes to each other, me to my wife or my wife to me, she said, I just feel distant this week distant. I haven't gone anywhere. But, but, but the presence that we have with each other is not what it ought to be. That's what I'm talking about. Has some sin come into your life? It's not that God has left you, that He's uh, abandoned you, but the relationship, it, it feels distant. 
because of sin. Perhaps God's presence in your life has become a secondary notion rather than a number one priority. When was the last time you sincerely prayed, if thy presence go not with me, then I don't want to go. That's the message. You want revival? You want God to do something in your heart, in your home, in your church? Then you've got to want His presence more than you want anything else.